Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by Deputy Editor Scott Indrasek. Hey, Isaac. Hey, Scott. And Editor Casey Lesser. Hey, Isaac. Hello, Casey. So this episode, we're going to be talking about something that I think about whenever uh, I'm scrolling through Twitter instead of doing something that I actually should be doing. And that's whether the digital age is impacting our ability to be creative. Is distraction uh, making creativity more difficult? Or on the flip side, are the digital connections being fostered through the internet actually helping creatives and artists uh, across the globe uh, see more art and explore new ideas? So uh, that's a huge question, but let's jump in. So Scott, you actually broke your phone this week. What have you been doing? Since I am that invested in the podcast, I purposely broke my phone on Saturday just so I could live without a smartphone in my pocket for, I got the replacement today, so it's been two or three days. And uh, this has happened before because I have a tendency to drop slash throw my phone at certain times in my life. It's been pretty liberating, I think, overall. I, I think it's like most people who've broken their phones for a few days, you, you kind of have like a detox period that lasts maybe half a day where you're like patting your pocket and like taking the non-existent phone out, waiting to check on something insignificant, and then eventually you realize you don't need to do that anymore. Wait, and you were actually writing a piece today, right? Has it like helped you be more creative, or are you mm. doing things that instead of being on your phone? Yeah, I think it definitely, I mean, to me, like the biggest example of how distracting a phone can be, which I'm sure everyone has experienced at some point in time, I've been on my laptop, already on the internet, maybe like on the New York Times website, something like this, reading the news with my phone next to my computer. And then I'll find myself checking the internet on my phone, even though the internet's already open on my laptop. Yeah. Like it literally makes no sense. That To me, that's like the epitome of how dangerous smartphones can be as far as just making you do totally ludicrous things that make no sense. I'm glad that we've had you as a, a human guinea pig, uh, <laughs> Scott, for this, for this podcast. There is some research out there on smartphones and cognition not a ton of it is dedicated exclusively to the internet technology and creativity there you just kind of have to make inferences based off the findings i think everyone today who uses a smartphone has thoughts or feelings about what it does but it's worth pausing to, to sort of see what the research says and one super interesting study that does actually pertain to art was uh, from 2013 it's uh, it was by fairfield professor Linda Henkel, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Linda, but basically she looked at whether taking photos of works of art in museums allowed people to remember them better or worse. What she found was actually a mixed bag. If students took a photo of a work of art in a museum, they actually remembered things about it less than those who didn't take a photo of it. But uh, this effect was kind of mitigated if you zoomed in on like one specific aspect of a work of art. That makes sense to me too, because I feel like if you're at a museum, there's almost no point in just taking a picture of an entire painting, let's say, because that image is definitely already in existence in the world. You know, it's like, it's already online. It might be in the museum's website, but if you're taking a detail shot, that's kind of a creative act in and of itself. You know, if you're saying, okay, here's this painting, it's a great painting, but what's really interesting here, and I'm determining this is like, 
this little cat in the corner or like the face of this guy over here. And I'm going to zoom in on that. Maybe that plays into it too. You're kind of making a creative choice in how you're cropping that image rather than just kind of blindly walking around taking a picture of every single painting. And again here, we're not talking about like a study that looks at how smartphones impact an artist creating work. We're, We're kind of looking at the research that's there, which is sort of looking at more broadly people walking through a museum, which is obviously a part of the creative process as is focus um, sort of an extended period of contemplation with something. And that too, research has found to be kind of negatively impacted even by the presence of smartphones. Like Scott, you were talking about how sometimes you'll go on your smartphone when you're on the internet on your laptop, which not all the time, occasionally well, every day. <laughs> I mean, I've never done that. That's pretty hardcore. Yeah, but right. Uh, I, Yeah, right. I do that all the time. <laughs> wow. The research has found that actually like your proximity to your phone distracts you um there was a wall street journal article by nicholas carr that i think came out last year where he like rounded up all of the existing research on smartphones and cognition and one of the studies that he pointed to actually found out that people scored worse on certain tests depending on how close their phone was to them like if it was in their pocket versus in a bag versus on the table versus in another room and the kind of creepiest thing is that the participants didn't actually know like when they were asked after the study whether or not their phone impacted how they performed they said no it had nothing to do with it so we all know we're distracted but these things could actually be impacting us in in, at times when we're not really aware of it and that applies to artists that applies to any photographers to any creative who carries around a smartphone and so you've got to imagine there's some kind of knock-on effect in in some way shape or form i do have to say i think it, it kind of is worthwhile to either like check your phone with your bag or I know the times I've been to museums where even if I didn't make that choice, but my phone was just dead, which is also a common occurrence. You, you really feel like nicely superior walking around a museum while everyone else is taking pictures and you're suddenly just like, you know, this loftier being <laughs> who's really appreciating things, you know, and it might just be because your phone's dead. So you don't even have the option, but it's kind of a nice experience. I was at the Rijksmuseum and I was seeing Vermeer's The Milkmaid for the first time. And it's in like the same huge gallery space where the Night Watch is too. But Night Watch is huge and there's always a crowd in front of it. So you, But you can still see it because it's so big. But The Milkmaid is just, you cannot see it because everyone's just taking a picture. There's like nothing you can do. I sort of second Scott here too and you. I don't understand why people take photos of a work of art. I guess they're putting it on Instagram. It would make sense. I have the same feeling but more pronounced at like a concert where, you know, people are holding up phones and they're obscuring everyone's view. And it's like, in order to get like the crappiest 20 second clip of a band seen from like a mile away, it just makes no sense. Or a bunch of old curmudgeons. No, but it, you know, <laughs> I'm not, yeah. to, not to say that like, yeah, of course you're going to post to Instagram and it's not like you're just going to go do a screen grab from the Rijksmuseum's website and post that to Instagram, but yeah. that might be easier. <laughs> <laughs> you still need your phone. This study came out last year, and it, it was interesting because it looked at whether distraction decreases our appreciation of beauty, basically asking people to look at different images and distracting certain people and not others. And it found that the more distracted the viewer was, the more difficult it was for them to appreciate beauty in terms of they actually like rated certain images as less beautiful uh, just because they were distracted. And I think that this is totally applicable to like the experience of going to an art museum. It's one of those studies that kind of backs up something you obviously know implicitly, which is that extremely, especially more difficult conceptual works of art, they're hard to have a connection with if you don't spend a good 20 seconds 
looking at it, I've had moments in front of art where I'm totally unimpressed. And then after 20 seconds, something just clicks and you really start to enjoy it. Well, it's funny you say a good 20 seconds. Like that's the, that's like an extreme expectation (laughs) that you'll spend 20 seconds looking at something, which I don't think is unfair, you know, like no matter. Yeah. You have actually also written about how long people actually look at art in museums, right? Yeah, it's something really short, uh, like seven seconds or something like that, like a tiny, minuscule amount of time. My favorite thing about that study was they had to eliminate two people because they weren't actually looking at the art. They were just taking selfies the whole time in front of the art. Oh, yeah. They, they, <laughs> they, 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 it was like arties was the word that they coined for it. <laughs> art selfies. Yeah, I mean, there is no research out there. There's no study that's tracked people who use their cell phones more than others over 10 years and how that's affected their cognition or focus or any sort of long-term impact. Sometimes I feel like talking about how the internet and phones are affecting our ability to focus is like talking about the sun rising. Like, it's just inevitable. Like, some, this is this is happening. But obviously, the internet is also opening up so much in terms of connection between artists. But I guess, you know, both of you have written about platforms uh, that have helped artists kind of connect with each other. What do you think the internet can kind of offer besides distractions in ways that sort of help us appreciate art? I think, yeah, that's the important point to make. I couldn't imagine being interested in art or like trying to research art in a pre-internet era where you would have a little question about what a certain art movement meant. And then that meant you'd have to literally physically go to the library. And obviously, you know, the elephant in the room is that we're, we all work for Artsy, which is like a big online art resource. It's trying to make these kind of connections possible. To me, it's great to have these resources and they're very invaluable. It's just a matter of self-policing the way you use them, let's say. What do you mean? To take advantage of all the good that's out there. Like, let's say you go to a museum and you're interested in a lot of what you see there. Like, maybe force yourself to wait until you get home to say, okay, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to look up everything that was interesting, rather than doing that thing where you go, oh, that was interesting, let me, like, stand here and Google it right now. Right. And then in that process, end up Googling 12 other things and fall down some rabbit hole of information. I think that the art world definitely stands to benefit from the internet in that it helps art get outside of the art world. And the same is true for artists. Today we talk a lot about how independent artists need to self-promote and self-market and the best way to do that is to build an online following and we've written a lot about websites that are serving to support artists and help them find alternative ways to either find inspiration or find funding so I think that today it's as much a good thing as an evil. I think one thing I'd like to bring up just about the way I use the internet, which is frustrating constantly to me, is that, you know, it's it's this infinite thing, basically. Like, you've got all the world's information at your fingertips. So if you're working in the kind of job where you're sitting in front of a computer all day, you'd think, wow, this is like, I'm taking a journey every day through all the world's information, right? And I don't think most people do that, actually. Like, in my case, I'll end up looking up the same websites, even if I'm, like, cursing myself while doing so, like, because they're <laughs> dumb or I'm sick of them or whatever. Or like not even using Instagram to look at other people's pictures, but just kind of like every now and then seeing how many other people have liked your pictures, which is like the most pointless thing a human being could ever do. Like multiple times a day, you know, like definitely I don't think that's that uncommon. Whenever I get distracted on the internet in sort of the way you're saying, you know, like following the same people on Twitter, on Facebook or whatever, I think about how I went to the, the Mark Twain house in Connecticut and I was getting a tour of his house. Very fascinating. Highly recommend. And 
the tour guide was talking about how Mark Twain pushed his desk up against a wall in his house because he hated how often he would get distracted by like just looking and seeing stuff out of the corner of his eye and you know going to like play pool or whatever do, do whatever it is Mark Twain did uh I don't know big but, pool player but huge pool player I think I'm saying that because I vaguely remember there being a pool table in his house if you work at the Mark Twain Museum and I'm wrong send me an email I think sometimes we want to blame the internet for the reason we're distracted or bored by something when in fact like maybe that thing is just really boring and you would find something else to distract you. Because I imagine in 50 years when people are walking around with VR headsets everywhere, they're going to think back on the days when we had so few distractions right now. Oh, you only had Twitter and Instagram? Like I can slap on this headset and go into like a totally different planet or something and and that's really distracting. So we have to we have to be honest with ourselves about how we're just distractible and sometimes bored by what we're doing. Or maybe they'll be using those headsets just to obsessively check how many likes they have on Instagram. Maybe it'll be depressingly exactly the same yeah. world. Yeah, I don't know. You know, and I think we really need to talk about something you've covered a lot, Casey, which, you know, we probably saved the best for last year, which is in terms of the internet offering opportunities to creatives, one huge sea change in the way in which things are financed is through the internet is crowdfunding uh, platforms like Kickstarter, pa- Patreon, you know, really allowing um, voices that normally wouldn't get heard projects that normally wouldn't get funded through traditional top down methods to kind of get that money that they need to take off. And so you wrote about drip, which is kind of, which is Kickstarter's sort of version of Patreon. Am I sort of getting that right? Yeah. But it's a little bit more exclusive than that. Can you Well, so it hasn't launched to like the public yet. Not everyone can join yet. Um, But they did this like soft launch with a selected group of creatives. And basically, you can go on there and browse their pages and see kind of what kind of work they're making. And you can choose to pay them as little as a dollar a month um, and basically kind of subscribe to them. And then in return, you get some kind of incentive, whether it's like access to their new work they're making maybe like process shots of what they're working on or like if you're paying a bit more or quite a bit more you might get a work of art like once a year or something like that some of the totals that you're throwing around in your piece uh, in terms of what these artists are seeing right now there's sort of like a few hundred bucks if that is this something that's meant to replace you know the traditional gallery model or kind of supplement it yeah, I don't think it will replace galleries, but it's kind of a interesting case for an extra um, channel of income that, depending on the artist, could be significant. I think what I determined is that it's great for artists who are already making work for the internet so that they don't have to make extra work. Um, like Molly Soda is one of the people you spoke Molly to, Molly right? Soda is a great one. And those people also tend to have a large online following Mm. you know by no coincidence because i guess one dollar isn't a lot to give but it doesn't make sense for an artist to spend an hour of their time creating something for people who give one dollar if the potentially the time invested into whatever they're creating for that level of subscriber is out you know they're not making enough money basically to do it like flat out yeah so the ideal scenario is they would be putting this on their website already Mm. the point is not to like hold some of their content behind a curtain it's really to just post you know more than you would normally or just kind of think differently about what you're putting online which is interesting but if you really think about it if those artists do have a dedicated following 
what's to say that these people don't, you know, happen to see this strip page, which they're all promoting. Mm. Like, what's keeping them from giving that person $1 a month if they do really do respect their work and want to support them in that way? If they have a huge following, that can really add up. I'm curious personally, like, how do you sort of think about this platform? I mean, do you see this having a long-term viability? Is Because I know there's so much economic pressure on on galleries that are maybe especially serving middle tier artists younger artists do you foresee an online model of crowdfunding where like you or i or people who don't buy work from galleries support artists through sort of direct contributions yeah i i mean i could see it as people who are aspirational collectors and you know feel more are are capable of giving maybe someone um a few hundred dollars over the course of a year and then maybe they get a print or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But we've seen with Patreon that people are making a living off of this model. But that's very different because in that case, a lot of the artists on there are making tutorial videos. So people are paying for access to that. You mean like artists on Patreon? I've never seen this. So artists on Patreon are offering classes online to people who pay sort of like five dollars a month or something yeah so i I don't know how much people are paying but like the top people in the art categories on patreon are generally creating videos for patreon there's so much pressure being put on artists and galleries right now that it's interesting to see the way that the internet is being used as a tool to kind of try and combat some of that in terms of you have you know crowdfunding paying directly to artists you have postmasters the gallery here in new york going on patreon um trying to to cultivate the idea that you know you as someone who cares and likes about art can support a for-profit venture by giving a tiny amount of money a cup of coffee a month to a gallery i don't think that would fail because people don't have that money but i wonder if people have the mindset of wanting to do something like that. Do you know what I mean? Wanting to support an artist or gallery in that capacity. In that way, without it being a direct transaction, you know, I I give you X amount of money, I expect this service. I mean, we, you know, millennials grew up in a time where you could get any song you wanted, you know, tracks that cost tens of thousands, albums that cost millions of dollars to create for free by just pirating them you know you know there are subscription services that lets you go see $20 movies as many as you want for $10 a month there, there is sort of a, a culture where expensive goods important cultural goods art movies music are just not being financially supported because the value digital for a digital product um, something that can be consumed online a work of art that you can see in a museum for a low price uh, or on a website you know it's just so low to people and i wonder if there will be a kind of change in how people conceptualize their relationship to an institution like a gallery which i do think it is important to support and there is a good argument to be made that people should give money even if they don't buy art because all of that trickles up to a museum like if you love the met you should be supporting galleries if you can the difference i think between like music let's say and contemporary art is i think most people you know will go to chelsea or go to a museum and see art and then kind of assume, okay, I'm enjoying this. I'm a civilian who's enjoying this. And there's some rich people out there who are like, hey, they're probably going to buy it. And they're the ones who are supporting the system as opposed to that doesn't really track with how music is because like everyone's stealing music. So that's sort of just ruining that industry. But I guess the assumption is that there's someone out there who's buying this art. Meanwhile, everyone else is just looking at it. Whereas there's no reason there couldn't be a model where everyone just says like, we were, we were talking the other day, 
like the way when you read the, the Guardian, it kind of says, oh, thanks for reading. You know, if you like what we do and feel like donating five pounds, why not think about that? It's kind of the same thought. Like basically you're, you're just paying for the experience you had. All right, guys. So where in the very real non-digital art world are you guys going to be going this week? Scott, why don't we start with you? I am going to go see, for the second time, the uh, Adrian Piper exhibition at the MoMA, which is called The Synthesis of Intuition, I think. Why are you going again? Because it's a huge show. It's the uh, it's the most space that MoMA's ever given over to a living artist at one time. Wow, really? So, yes. When I went the first time, it was pretty crowded. It was first thing in the morning, and there's a lot to dig into. It's like, it's a pretty dense show. There's a lot to see, and um, yeah, I just want to take a second spin. Did you get some of the first time around? Did you get those cards that she would hand out? I did. Actually, one of them is now stuck into the side of my bathroom mirror. Well, just because we brought it up and our listeners probably don't know what we mean by these cards, what what were they? They were basically like cards that she would give out at cocktail parties. One was a note that she would give to friends who had told like a racist joke, basically saying that they're, you know, explaining how their racism had bothered her. Another was against sexual harassment. So it basically says, don't poke me, prod me, grab me, um, some several other verbs. And the other one I'm totally blanking on. They're really, it, was, yeah. it was something that was equally kind of insightful, witty, but um, yeah. Casey, what about you? I am going to Tulum to see a new gallery that's opening there. It's called IK Lab. And actually, by the time that this podcast publishes, you'll be able to read my article about it. The first show has Tatiana Truve, Arthur Lesher, and Margot Trushina. It's this really kind of beautiful, organic architectural space. And I'm going to follow up on, on what I said last week. I said I was going to see the Grant Wood show at the Whitney uh, true fans will remember that, true fans of the pod. But I actually, on, on the same floor, it, it's at the Whitney, on the same floor is the Zoe Leonard exhibition, which I went to first. And actually, I have to say, I liked it even more than the Grant Wood show. I thought it was excellent. We were talking about on the last podcast, conceptual work that kind of gives your mind something to play with long after you've seen it and, and sort of deep, but also isn't alienating on sort of an aesthetic or cursory level and I thought her work is just sort of fantastic she has these amazing assemblages of postcards of Niagara Falls taken from different perspectives and at different times in history um, and it's just this amazing snapshot of this tourist attraction from all these different moments in time and space and I thought it was super great and it was fantastic so if you're going to see the Grant Wood show check that out as well or just go check it out you know you don't need to see the grant wood i was kind of <gasps> underwhelmed I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be honest know. with you i gotta say isaac i had the opposite feeling are you serious really yeah i thought the zoe leonard show was <gasps> but the grant wood show was great thanks casey and scott for joining me please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on itunes if you haven't already if you have any feedback we'd love to hear from you shoot us an email podcast at artsy.net. Our producer this week was Luis Sansano with help from Surya Tuba. Our theme music is by Broke for Free. <laughs>